This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Visitors Bureau says pre-pandemic, Hawaii averaged 100,000 travelers a month touching down from Japan. But lately, it's been only about 1,500 a month. Today's Hawaii Safe Travels program gets tweaked with new rules to welcome international travelers. And Japan also begins relaxing restrictions on business travel and students coming in and out of the country. We talked to Eric Takahata, who handles the Japan tourism market for the Hawaii Visitors Bureau. Forecast is that we should be, <laughs> we should be heading into the year end and expecting a, a slight bump. Surely more than we're getting now, right? The more than the 1,500 that we're getting now. The airlines, uh, the Japanese carriers, as well as uh, Hawaiian Airlines, all are slowly starting to increase flights into December as well as into January. So, you know, they're all good signs, right? The airlines uh, increasing flights is, also tells us that, you know, the market is, is showing the demand and, you know, they're adding flights back um, to the Hawaii routes. How many flights uh, do we have uh, daily now? We are at about anywhere from 50 to 55 flights a month. How quickly can the airlines ramp up? Japanese carriers tell us it's about two weeks, about two weeks to um, add back a flight. So, for example, like uh, in December, we go up to 78 flights. We were at 56 flights in December, and um, there's now a total of 78. So, you know, we see about a 20-something flight increase for December. Uh, obviously, at the beginning of the year, you know, if the COVID cases stay down and the vaccination rates go up, right. that it would get the confidence up and uh, and the restrictions uh, hopefully will, will fall away. Yeah, will further be, you know, relaxed and eased. And, um, you know, Japan's as a country, their vaccination rate is pretty much the same as Hawaii's, right? About low 70s, about 72 percent for the country of Japan. So fully vaccinated. So, you know, they're heading in the, the, the very good direction. And I guess that makes us attractive, too, as a safe location to go. Oh, yes. I mean, we're, we're viewed as a very safe location. Um, Hawaii and Japan, you know, share a special, right, long-time relationship. And what's been the activity as far as, let's say, the honeymooners that have been coming from Japan, you know, during COVID? You know, have there been any? No. The You know, the romance market, uh, as we refer to, you know, refer to it as, was nearly um, non-existent. But the interesting thing is that the majority of the bookings that were in, you know, for, um, say, for example, for honeymoons, as well as um, having wedding ceremonies here in Hawaii, those numbers didn't go, uh, go away. Uh, they were actually postponed, and most of them, they didn't cancel, altogether cancel their plans. So that was a good sign. So we see that, you know, going into next year, that that romance market is going to be one of the uh, main segments for the Japanese coming back. And what about um, marketing in Japan? So as far as our marketing, the immediate thing that we're doing is, you know, of course, we understand the, the economic impact to our state. So we need to return um, this market um, back to traveling, you know, to Hawaii as soon as possible. Uh, on a purely from, if you look at it from the economic standpoint, um, you know the, the Japanese visitor is is a visitor that's very respectful of our of our natural resources and culture. They are a higher spending visitor, which we want here in Hawaii. And so the marketing right now that we are concentrated on is to return the market as soon as possible. And again, coupled with that, it, it's also to um, educate, pre-educate uh, the Japanese visitors before they come back to Hawaii that, you know, it's going to be quite a different Hawaii um, that they're coming back to. And from a destination standpoint, where we want to educate them more on um, malamaing or taking care of our natural resources, um, our, our, our land here, our aina, and how precious it is for, for residents as well as visitors, for everyone to you know, be on the same page to do that. So you know, the marketing is surrounded. It's, it's almost two-pronged. It's to return the market as soon as possible, but in the right way. And what are we looking as far as benchmarks, you know, as we make our way to the end of the year and, and look beyond uh, to the first quarter of 2022? So, you know, the, the first one we're looking at um, before the end of this year is the Honolulu Marathon. And, man, we're so thankful <laughs> to Dr. Bearhall, uh for really just, uh, you know, really just hanging in there and, and, and having the event and just really um, can't thank him enough. It's a big event for the Japanese. On any given year, you have about 1,500 uh, runners from Japan, and, 
and that's about half of the entrance uh, on any given year for the Honolulu Marathon. And so this year, uh, currently, we have about uh, several hundred, just about 300 uh, runners registered for this year's marathon from Japan. And, uh, but we, we anticipate that with the easing of restrictions on both sides, right, for Hawaii and Japan, that those numbers might pick up pretty quickly, you know, before the, the end of the year. So there might be a nice increase for the Honolulu Marathon uh, this year. And then moving into New Year uh, or year-end, the traditionally busy time for the Japanese, busy season for the Japanese, you know, that's another bump that we're looking at. And we're going to see a lot of people traveling during that time, affluent travelers, because uh, the prices are usually higher on airfare and hotels during that time. We hope to see another increased bump during uh, year-end and New Year. And then rolling right into the quarter one of next year, right, we we are looking at several events, such as the Honolulu Festival, which is, you know, traditionally just brings in a, thousands of, of Japanese visitors. And then, you know, going into Golden Week, May of next year, uh, we hope that, you know, we get some significant numbers back from Japan. So, yeah, wrapping up into Q2 of, of 2022, we, we hope to get some kind of significant numbers. And when I say significant, I mean, uh, you know, recovering hopefully about 60-70% of what we had pre-pandemic from Japan. So we hope that um, that's what um, we anticipate that, and that's what the industry is telling us it's going to look like. And so as these uh, uh, travel restrictions are relaxed across the U.S., it's just the vaccination, proof of vaccination, or proof of a negative test. And so the visitors from Japan will be able to hopefully get those pretty quick. That's right. And we're very thankful to Governor Ige on, um, you know, aligning with the federal government starting November 8th. The Japanese visitors uh, will be able to come in, uh, enter the U.S. and Hawaii with proof of vaccination from any of the CDC-recognized and then the WHO-recognized mm-hmm. vaccines. And then with that, they also need a negative uh, test result. And, and so... Prior to uh, November 8th, coming into Hawaii from Japan, it was, a, it was specified a PCR test. But now, um, you know, you could come in with even an antigen test, which, which lowers the cost tremendously for the Japanese visitor to come into Hawaii. So, yeah, as long as they have those two things, they're, they're able to come and, and they're readily uh, available uh, in Japan. And with the vaccination rate, like I said, with the whole country of Japan being about 72%, uh, most people are vaccinated. And, and, and we anticipate probably the majority, almost near 100% of the people that travel to Hawaii from Japan will be vaccinated. So as far as advertising dollars, what's the strategy for, for advertising? We're first looking at partnering with all of our industry partners, uh, mainly the airlines as well as the travel companies to return the business. And so we'll be um, side by side with them, returning the market and kind of... Uh, you know, promoting Hawaii again uh, to Japan. With that, you know, we're going to use a lot of digital platforms. So you're going to see a lot of social media, digital platforms like YouTube TV and some other platforms that are kind of uh, specific to Japan. Uh, we'll be using those platforms to market to the Japanese. And like I said, you know, the marketing message is going to be quite different. Uh, it's going to be more um, from a malama uh, kind of uh, angle. Uh, pre-educating the Japanese visitors before they come back on what Hawaii is like now. So, uh, but at the same time, you know, we, you know, please come and have your great vacation, which you deserve after not being able to come here for almost two years. You know, there's a lot of pent-up demand from Japan. So, you know, we, we expect to get that market back fairly quickly. That was Eric Takahata from the Hawaii Visitors Bureau talking about the marketing plan for Japan and also about how quickly Japanese airlines can ramp up their plans to respond to demand for flights to Hawaii. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Your Backyard Quiz is next. Mm-hmm. 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we're revisiting two elections from the end of the 19th century. Both were to decide who would rule the Kingdom of Hawaii. David Kalakaua was on the ballot not once, but twice between 1873 and 1874. But only a select few were able to cast a ballot. Some of the voter uh, eligibility requirements in the 1864 Constitution You had to be male, own property, or have an income of at least $75 a year and be able to pass a literacy test in either Hawaiian or English. Kalakaua was soundly defeated in the first of the two elections before winning the second time and being named king. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know who were Kalakaua's opponents in those two elections. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com of COVID-19 shot clinics in our public schools is off to a slow start. The Department of Health says only one school, Kalihiuka, is offering the vaccines to students 11 to 5 years of age today. More than 100 schools initially expressed interest in holding clinics for its students. One of the largest brick-and-mortar charter schools, Kamaile Academy, plans to have its very first clinic on Friday. It has uh, just about 1,000 students enrolled from pre-K through the 12th grade. During this pandemic, it has been a pace setter from these clinics to testing of staff and students. Some 94% of teachers have been vaccinated. We talked to Principal Paul Kepka this morning. He says since the start of the school year, it saw 26 positive COVID cases in its school community. Like most schools, uh, you know, we had a lot more positive cases on campus earlier in the year. Um, I think the schools are a representation of our community. As the community becomes healthier, you know, our schools are healthier. So I commend our community for working together to, you know, have overall wellness. But, yeah, we've seen a significant decrease in active or positive cases on campus. Um, And as a result, it's easier for teaching and learning um, here at the school. And so talk about this upcoming clinic that you have planned. You know, Kamile has been really fortunate to have been able to partner with the Waianae Coast Comprehensive Health Center since the beginning of the pandemic. You know, what we initially uh, reached out to them, you know, just for advice and consultation, um, and then we forged partnership um, with the Pacific Alliance Against COVID to pilot testing programs here at the school. And the next logical step then is to continue on and, and uh, provide vaccination support for our, our students here at school. So we're really excited. Our first uh, our vaccination clinic for our youngest students, uh, 5 to 11, will be this Friday from 1.30 to 4 here at Kamala. And so how does that work? I mean, if parents want to be there, for the shot, uh, just in case their child needs consoling, you know, are they allowed yeah. to come? Absolutely. I think it's um, it's really important. That's one of the things we talked about uh, with the YNX Comprehensive Health Center was how to make it easy for our families, right? We want to make it easy. We want the kids to feel comfortable, um, you know, receiving a shot. You know, it can be a little scary even for adults, um, especially for children. So we have a um, vaccination protocol here or, you know, attestation uh, protocol in place. And what we're going to do for our families um, in the event that they forget their vaccination card or maybe they're not vaccinated themselves for whatever reason, we'll be able to have a uh, fast on-site testing right here that day. So we don't want to have to turn anyone away for something like that. So if they are unable to have their fax card or um, they, they need a quick COVID test, we'll be able to use our partnership with uh, the Wyandotte Coast Comprehensive Health Center to provide that support for our families because we want the kids comfortable. Did uh, you survey your parents initially? 
we did do an initial survey. I sent home like a, just a fast survey to families to see who would be interested. I didn't have a huge uh, response on that, um, but about 25% of our families, you know, expressed interest of those that returned. But the, the rate of return was pretty low. Um, but I am optimistic that, um, you know, families will choose. And I think the whole thing is that, that we give them a choice, right, where they're comfortable, whether they're comfortable with their health care provider or comfortable on campus. You know, we want to support our families in any way we can um, to get these, these uh, KK vaccinated. And I know the health department was a concern because there are a number of zip codes where the vaccination rates uh, were low and there was a really concerted effort to get out into those communities. Uh, and I, you know, I believe, gosh, there were long lines at the one I, uh, comprehensive center uh, when they did open that up. Yeah. I mean, I think um, Kamala Academy and all the schools out here on the coast are just doing everything we can do to support the effort. Um, you know, some of that effort is, you know, um, making testing and vaccination easy. Um, and I think um, in different locations, uh, I think the education component is really important and like you know, teaching our, our children and our parents about the pandemic, uh, leading with the data. Um, you know, here at Kamida, we've done a bunch of town hall meetings. We've invited the doctors out um, to, to support and speak to our families. Um, our teachers have been using um, some educational modules to try to you know, teach the kids about um, you know, how COVID um, transmit and how we can support with our Ohana bubbles. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a multifaceted approach as we, you know, address the pandemic. And will there be any uh, pediatricians, let's say, uh, available there on Friday on site or nurses or how does that work? Yeah, so I mean, basically, uh, Kamala is going to be providing the, the venue, right, our uh, beautiful cafeteria, and we'll have staff here to support, but the, the clinic is really being, um, you know, on site by the, the Wynick, there's comprehensive in their healthcare professionals. So I'm confident they'll have all their, their professionals here to make sure things go smoothly. And in the event that, you know, there's some sort of student that needs special attention, we're going to make sure we have it. We, we had a pre-meeting and really talked about all those details um, to make sure that you know, everyone is supported as best they can. Our aim is just to make it as easy as we can for our families. So we've sent out some save the data information, get people to mark their calendars, and today we're sending out hard copy registration forms, all of our, our um, Hamana in grade uh, K through 6, because that's the, the age group 5 to 11. So we'll be sending them out all out today in hard copy, make it as easy as they can for the families. Um, we're including some frequently asked questions, contact information, make it as easy as we can uh, to get our kids here and get them vaccinated. And, you know, there are a long list of uh, shots that the students have to get before they even set a foot on campus at the beginning of the year. Hopefully then this will just be one more to add to the list. I'm going to kind of leave that to um, people that make those sort of decisions. But, I mean, I'm hoping that as we move forward with this uh, pandemic, that, that people become more comfortable and, and um, you know, that, that we can, uh, you know, keep our kids in school, and I think that's really the aim. Um, how do we manage um, COVID-19 uh, to keep people well and, and, and ultimately at the school level, you know, support teaching and learning, because that's, that's really the business we're in, supporting the whole child um, academically, social, emotionally, and we know that kids need to be in school to do that work. Talk about the types of uh, testing that you're doing on campus. Yeah, so um, early on in this, uh, as the pandemic was was uh, getting in the swing. Uh, again, we partnered with the Pacific Alliance Against COVID, and uh, we piloted a testing program here. And, and we started with just our staff, and the idea was that, um, you know, if, if just to, to help our, our, our staff feel comfortable um, being in school and learning about how to do testing. Um, and as a result, then, that pilot has spread out, um, and now it's available in many schools um, on uh, the Waianae Coast and Oahu and also on the um, Hawaii Island. And uh, basically, yeah, so we, we were able to test um, test staff and, and students. Um, the students that are above um, ages 10 and, up, 10 and below, we need to have their parents. But if they're 10 and up, um, they can um, test without their, without their parents um, as long as they have consent. And then uh, do you have a feel for how many of your students that 
are uh, 12 and up who are vaccinated? That's a really good question, and we've been asking folks to share that that data with our schools, um, with Kamile, and um, I would say it's about 30 percent. Um, it it, it, it kind of it's not it's not as high as uh, maybe I would hope, but. Um, I, I don't have exact numbers. I think it's around 30%. Okay. And so you're, it's just a voluntary thing whether they will let you know and share with you that their child has yeah, been vaccinated. Yeah, we've asked them to share the information with their health firm. Uh, we have about 600 students that will be eligible for this clinic coming up. So, you know, I hope we can, um, you know, get get if we can similar trends would be, would be amazing. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, overall, I think um, they, they – they're, they're creeping up, and I'm happy. Um, you know, we see a, a significant decline in our school. I mean, it was pretty it was pretty um, alarming as we first came back to school. You know, especially here at our school, we had a lot of positive cases re- really early on, and it was very, very difficult to manage it because, um, you know, it was really new to all of us. We went coming back uh, face-to-face. So I'm really impressed overall with the team effort collectively to you know, try to better our situation. That was Kamile Academy's principal, Paul Kepka, talking to us about how uh, he's planning to roll out COVID-19 vaccines uh, on uh, his campus on Friday. It will only be available to uh, students at Kamile Academy. Kepka tells us several regular DOE schools on Oahu's west side plan to hold clinics over the next two weeks. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years in Hawaii, featuring Daikin air conditioners. Learn more about contractors who install Daikin products at costcohawaii.com. Need a break in your day? Whether you're in your car, your kitchen, or still in bed, Manu Minute brings you the rich sounds of Hawaii's native forests and shorelines. Learn about the long-legged ayo, the clever alala, and more as we listen to the birds' unique songs and talk to experts about their conservation. Get the Manu Minute delivered to your phone or mobile device. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. We may be a week out from Halloween, but we do have a bat story for you. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check looks at Hawaii's native hoary bat. Reporter Brittany Light joins us. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So th- th- we were hearing a lot about these bats uh, because of the windmills that were going up around the state. Yeah, so these bats are facing a number of, of newer threats. Um, and one of those threats is the, the wind farms that we have. I believe there are eight of them across the state, and one is under construction. Um, they're on Oahu, the Big Island, and Maui. And the threat is, you know, the, these bats, they are nocturnal. So they're night flyers. They're highly mobile. At night, they, they, feed, they feed on bugs. They eat 40% of their body weight in bugs, and so they're out and they're about. And if they you know, are unable to detect the, the rotors of the, of the windmill, they can collide with them. And that, you know, usually causes a fatality. Well, that bat happens to be our native, or I would say our state mammal, right? Yeah, it's our official state land mammal. And it's also our only land mammal that's native to uh, Hawaii. And the animal got that designation in 2015, really as an effort just to bring public awareness to to its plight. So it's an endangered animal, um, but right now that is sort of up for debate um, as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife has kind of been looking at research that these these wind farms that, that threaten the species have funded. Um, 
So the wind farms have been required to fund this research, and the research has shown that this endangered bat actually exists on more islands than previously thought. Um, it appears that it exists on all the major islands um, and that it at least visits every island uh, in the Hawaiian island chain. And so researchers are thinking that maybe this animal is a little bit more resilient than, than previously thought. And um, so now the feds are proposing uh, downlisting the species from endangered to threatened. Okay, it'll still be protected, but those safeguards just aren't, I guess, as high. Exactly. It would still be protected, but uh, it wouldn't have as high of a, of a degree of, of protection. And, we- and so that's, that's worrying you know, some conservationists who say, you know, it's great that these wind farms are funding millions of dollars of research that's helping us understand these animals. It's amazing that we're finding out that they actually, you know, are, are more um, ubiquitous through the through the island chain than, than we thought. Um, but we still don't know enough about this animal to even venture a guess at its population size. And so some conservation groups are kind of saying, you know, if, if we don't even know if there are hundreds of these animals or thousands of these animals left, you know, how, how can we really downgrade the species? You know, I recall that the uh, uh, federal agencies, you know, were, uh, they did give permits for a certain number of, uh, uh, I guess, takes on those bats that those uh, uh, windmills could claim every year. Exactly. So it, it's, um, you know, this this is being regulated. Uh, wind farms have a certain number of bats that they are permitted to, to you know, have these takes or, or really just fatalities, these collisions that happen. Um, so all of this is being regulated, and, and part of the research, wind farms are kind of developing mitigation measures, which reduce the number of bats that die. Um, and also, um, you know, mitigation measures that, you know, okay, well, we killed this many bats, and so we're going to fund, um, you know, some kind of effort that will protect the bats in some other way to make up for that. So, so all, of, all of these strategies are kind of still um, under study. And so um, conservationists really want to see that work get more developed um, if, the, if the animal is going to, to kind of be downlisted and, and become threatened. And so, um, but some, the are, so some of these farms have uh, tried to, like, what, chase these bats away, right? They've got some acoustic uh, devices on there that uh, uh, chase the bats away so they don't get, you know, killed in the blades. Yeah, so one strategy that's kind of under study is, you know, playing a really loud noise that, you know, aggravates the bats and, and kind of keeps them away um, from the wind farm. So, so that's one strategy. Um, a, another strategy is just not um, running the turbines at night uh, when the wind is at a certain speed. Um, when the wind picks up, these bats can't fly. Um, so, you know, one of, one of the strategies could be to, to just not run the turbines when, when winds are low and, and the bats are out and about just to, you know, really... Uh, avoid these these collisions. Well, hopefully they get better numbers so we can figure out what to do with these bats. But thanks so much, Brittany. Yeah, you're welcome. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. One of the worst impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic has been social isolation. It's impacted every community in our state, including the Hawaii chapter of Best Buddies, the nonprofit that creates employment, development, and friendship opportunities for those with intellectual and developmental disabilities, or what's called IDD. The organization went from holding face-to-face activities to hosting online sessions for its special needs members. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with State Director Karen Glasser for a program update and got a first-hand perspective from Ambassador and Advisory Board Member Ho'opio Belaz, who starts us off. I joined Best Buddies in late 2018 at the suggestion of my aunt. This is a time in life where I needed to get out of this rut of 
of complacency that I've been in, and I really wasn't in a good place mentally, so I needed to help get my life back on track. I was 24 at the time. And you're now part of the University of Hawaii Manoa chapter. Yeah, I'm part of the branch, and not just that, but I'm also an ambassador as well. Mm-hmm. Being an ambassador involves being someone who represents best buddies, helps spread the message of inclusion. I also get the opportunity to talk about best buddies, whether it's on the news, whether on social media, or even today on the show. And what was your first experience? So take me back. What was that first experience like? It felt very different. A lot of people who saw me at Best Buddies that wanted to talk with me and they asked how I was. At the time, I didn't really have much good speaking skills and, and I was trying to figure out a way to be better at talking. So, so I really felt kind of nervous. But at the same time, it felt like an experience that could help me. I'm very glad that I'm a part of this group. If I wasn't a part of this group, I would not have I would not have been the new person that I am today. It is a testament to the program because you you said that you weren't comfortable speaking, but as we talk now, it's a very comfortable conversation. So a lot of growth since you started being a part of Best Buddies. Mm-hmm. And Karen, you help facilitate one-to-one friendship programs as well as leadership development for individuals with and without IDD. What does it, how do you build up these friendships? How do you find, pair these friends up? So the school friendship programs are actually the first programs that were created when Anthony Kennedy Shriver started Best Buddies back in 1989 at Georgetown University. And the idea was really to put students with disabilities or people with disabilities match them in one-to-one friendships with students or other adults without disabilities because most people with disabilities often find themselves only spending time with other people with disabilities or paid caregivers or their parents' friends and their parents. And so he noticed there was really a lack of opportunity for people with disabilities. They were very segregated. Um, in the classroom and out in the community. That it was not so when he would go to Special Olympics events. His mother, Eunice, started Special Olympics, and he saw the way inclusion could look, and he thought about bringing that to a larger audience out into the community. So the idea is to match students with disabilities with students without disabilities. We base that on shared interests, and the idea is that these buddy pairs communicate at least once a week, by a text or call or email, and they see each other at least twice a month. Oftentimes, one of those meetings per month is a chapter meeting, so the whole group will get together. The chapters are a student club at a high school, a college, a middle school, an elementary school, and so forth. And then they can get together on their own, the buddy pairs, outside of that. But the idea really is to put enough shared interests together so that these people form a true organic friendship that stands the test of time. And we have seen across the country that so many of these friendships just are maintained. No matter where folks go, they tend to stay in touch because they do grow organically. Hope you're thriving in Best Buddies. You're an ambassador as well as an advisory board member. How has the leadership programs helped you? Thank you. And, well, the leadership that I've learned have helped me become a much more better speaker. I mean, you were talking in 2017, my speaking skills would have been abysmal. But nowadays, my public speaking skills are much more better, and I'm able to talk more with people, whether they're all still fellow ambassadors or whether they're not ambassadors. Hmm. Good for you. Karen, anything else you would like to follow up on or add? So the the ambassador program is part of our leadership development pillar. We are offering up the ability for our participants with and without disabilities, but more specifically our participants with disabilities, the opportunity to learn how to write and give advocacy speeches. It is always much more impactful for the community and for our participants 
foster that independence and have them represent themselves and explain what it is that they need and want from the community. And so that is a really, really big part of what we do. We oftentimes pair with companies, uh, big and small, and we have the company bring in volunteers, we bring in participants, and we work one-to-one to write advocacy speeches, and then our participants deliver these. These are in-person ambassador trainings, which we obviously have not done in the last two years. We have done ambassador trainings online, and Best Buddies in Hawaii actually offers monthly ambassador trainings. Um, We started those last fall during the pandemic, and we started with an elevator pitch, and we taught our participants how to write an elevator pitch, a two- or three-minute speech, what they're about. And then over the course of the year, every month, we built out that speech, that it was a longer speech. Our participants speak in front of state legislatures. They've spoken in front of Honolulu City County for grants. They speak at all of our public events, fundraisers. It's really, really important that our participants have that, find their voice, we nurture their voice, and that they use it. The other thing we do on the leadership development side is we've been running a program every Wednesday called Half Hour Heroes, where we invite leaders from the community with or without disabilities to come in and talk to our participants via Zoom for 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, and then take questions. And we have had producers from PBS's Hiki No. We have had uh, a nurse who had been in the Best Buddies Pearl City High School chapter some years ago. We have had beauty pageant title holders we have had music producers. One of our big supporters is the actor, Jorge Garcia. He actually has not only come aboard to talk about his, his life as an actor and what that looks like, but he has actually directed a piece. Lee Cataluna wrote this short play for young people. The name of the play is What the Stars See at Night. And he actually directed our participants in this play via Zoom. I don't think I can go another night just waiting for someone to wish on me. Are you as bright as you can be? Yes. Are you as twinkly as you can be? I am twinkling so hard. Now look down there and pick someone who needs you. Can I do that? Don't they have to pick me? Give it a try. There's a little boy looking out his window and he should be asleep. I'll bet he's wishing for a bike or a puppy or a little brother. Oh, I see him. Hi, little boy. Send him some light. How do I do that? Shine some love on him. So there are lots of really cool ways that we engage on a level that shows our participants with and without disabilities what's possible out there in the world. And so we call that leadership development as well. A very deep understanding for what it takes to respect and have the know-how in helping people with disabilities thrive in life. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. It's really one of the biggest things we do is inform and advocate because we know that there are a lot of people who don't know we are out here and that we have programming, most of it free, for students and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So Best Buddies in Hawaii is always looking to open new chapters in schools that don't currently have our programs. And that's private and public, elementary, middle, high school, and colleges. We are right now in 21 chapters on Oahu and nine chapters on Maui. We would love to be on all the islands. So if there are parents or students who are interested in our programming, they should absolutely get in touch with us at hawaii at bestbuddies.org. We would love to open programs at all of these schools, like I said, public and private. There are lots of other opportunities for um, adults with and without disabilities. We have a program called Citizens, which is that school friendship program, but taken to the adult level, so out in the community. We we are looking for participants for that program with and without disabilities, and that is for adults 18 and older. We were able to open that particular program in March of this year, yes, in the middle of a pandemic, 
because those services are needed and this is a great social outlet for our friends who are advocates in the disability rights community. We also have an email pen pal program called eBuddies, which is terrific. You get to email at your own convenience. You don't necessarily have to drive and meet someone. So that's another program, another way to get involved. And then of course we have committees. You can be on an event committee. You can help us with our programming. Um, there are lots of different ways to get involved with our organization. But really the idea is to turn everybody in the community who's interested into one of our volunteers and advocates so that our young people with disabilities, as they age out of the school system and they move into the workplace, they move into the community, they have all the opportunities available to them that neurotypical people have available to us. And it's really just about respect, opening your mind and your heart, and we want everybody to be a part of the Best Buddies Ohana. That was Best Buddy State Director Karen Glosser and Student Ambassador Ho'opio Balaz talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Musicians Henry Capono, Roby Kahakalao, and others will be entertaining at their Champion of the Year Friendship Jam, an in-person celebration, which is being held November 14th at Blue Note, Hawaii. We'll share links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Because we can work it out. We are friends, friends, friends. We are friends, friends, friends. I remember. You know, in today's Backyard Quiz, we asked about King David Kalakaua's two elections, the second of which made him King of Hawaii. Under his rule, Kalakaua negotiated the 1875 Reciprocity Treaty with the United States, which eased tariffs on local products and opened the door for the local sugar industry to flourish. His reign saw a period of relative prosperity and revival of local culture until the 1887 Bayonet Constitution brought an end to the monarchy. Kalakaua's first attempt for the crown followed the death of Kamehameha V in December 1887. 72. Because he had not designated an heir, his successor was determined by an election in 1873. Kalakaua was defeated by a war, wide margin by Prince William Charles Lunalilo. In 1874, Lunalilo also died without having named a successor. Another election was held, and Kalakaua won handily over Queen Emma, widow of Kamehameha IV. No winners today, but that was today's quiz. If you have an idea for us, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA, more information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. The best time to prepare for an emergency is before it actually happens. Medically, that is. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with experts in advanced care planning and how to make your wishes known now while you actually have plenty of time to think about it. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. You know, Dan Freitas never forgot a particular conversation that he had with a little four-year-old girl in upstate New York years ago. The former Head Start teacher now has little ones of his own, and he reached out to us to talk about a children's book. He just got published by Beach House Publishing. It's called A Shape-Shifting Adventure in Hawaii. Well, originally, many years ago, or maybe like five or six years ago, I was working uh, as a preschool teacher in upstate New York in Ithaca, and I was sitting next to uh, this little girl, and she was just the sweetest little thing, but she was always had her head up in the clouds. So you talked to her, and there was always just a glint in her eye and something going on, but you just <laughs> didn't always connect sometimes. But she was sitting next to me at lunchtime, and she went ahead and uh, she said, uh, Mr. Dan, can I, uh, can I eat this chip? I'm like, yeah, sure. She goes, it's a triangle. I'm like, that's true. It's a triangle. And then she bit off the tip of it, and she goes, now it's a trapezoid. I'm like, that is a trapezoid. How, how did that happen? And it was just, that just stuck with me. And so, 
years later, when and I was working over at um, uh, Blanche Pope as a Head Start teacher, I was just sitting there and was talking about shapes. And I was in front of the class, and I was like, well, I'm going to make a story. I love telling stories, and I love making up stories. So I just said, once upon a time, there's a line. And it was bored, and so I just drew a line on the whiteboard. And then and so it connected both ends of itself together and made a circle. And it rolled off, and it was stepped on, and it was uh, created, it became a oval. And I just went from there. Every little, everything that happened, it would just change shapes. It went from an oval and didn't want to get stepped on again, so it turned into a triangle. Somebody got stepped on. It, it hurt the, uh, the I, at that time it was an elephant, but I, I later on changed it to a, a pig. Uh, but it stepped on it, and then uh, it ran away, And then, but it couldn't roll very well. But then a bird came by and picked it up and then dropped it. And it, that, that's when it plink got squished and became a trapezoid. So it just blossomed from there, and I just I told the whole story in one sitting, and that's, that's where the story came from. Well, this is great because, you know, it's a simple concept, but you place it in Hawaii and it connects with kids, the, the pig, the pua'a, you know, it's, it's, it's just really, uh, you know, a lovely way to learn your shapes. Yeah, I think so, too. And uh, I've, uh, I can honestly just, when I look at the book, the drawings by Jamie are just beautiful. Uh, I just couldn't stop smiling when I started looking at them for the first time. And even now, I'm looking at the pictures I'm talking to you, and I'm just—they're just so funny. And every little thing has so many different intricate details that you look off. And uh, my favorite one is when the the pua sits on the triangle and runs away. I just think it's hilarious. <laughs> well, so have you had a chance to uh, share this story with uh, some keiki? I mean, what do they think? Um, I actually haven't had the chance to share with anybody else in my immediate family. I have. Some little. Uh, I have three children, and my eldest is eight, and she loves it. And my son, who's uh, six, he read it. He can read it, and he he loves it too. And he just sat there and read it over and over and over again when I first got the my, the, the only copy that I have right now. And then uh, my my baby girl, she she's 20 months old. She just I I have pictures of her just sitting and looking through, and I can't I couldn't take the book away. And so that just makes me really excited to see that. Well, I guess they're your uh, toughest critics. They are my toughest critics. And they, they, as you know, old children tell the truth regardless of if you want to hear it or not. And I really uh, love having them see it. And uh, I've told the story to them just out loud. And for them to visualize it and see it, they just were so happy. And I would tell the stories when I, I would actually substitute other head starts when they needed a teacher to come in. And I would tell the same story to them. And all the kids really, really loved it. And so... Once again, it's so nice to see it come to light because I draw glorified stick figures, and so I can never draw anything to this level, and it just makes me smile just to look at it. Yeah, the illustrations are wonderful. You know, you've got the, the lohi patch, you've got the, the ko'olaus and the poyo fly, flying above, uh, and the, the beaches, the lifeguard stand. So they're, they're images that we see every day, and it's so nice that uh, you tell this story in a Hawaii setting. Oh, yeah. Uh, and what I like is so when they, for instance, so the it becomes a square and it meets the hiki, it meets the the crabs. I mean, those are the same crabs I see at the beach. I go to the beach multiple times a week, and my kids always go, and we see them. And uh, that's what I like to tell the kids in my classes when I was teaching. Oh, uh, you know, what's a rectangle? Well, a rectangle is just a square that's been stretched out by two crabs. And to them, gives that visual representation of that they can actually see that in in their heads, and they also can see that, uh, just see crabs might pull over something and just how it happens. Yeah. Well, it's great. You know, you've got the honu, the sea turtles, you've got the ba'a, the sea urchins. And, and so, yeah, it, it's just nice that the story takes place in our setting. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, well, I love Hawaii. I, I'm originally from California, but I went to college out here and I moved away for a few years when my wife went to another school in upstate New York. She went to Cornell. And we were like, man, we miss Hawaii, and I became who I am by living in Hawaii. The person that I am now is because of Hawaii, and I wanted to share that with my children. So we, we moved back here when my daughter was two and a half, and my baby boy was just a couple months old, and we've been here ever since again, and just absolutely love it here. And I understand that you live in Waimanala with two cats, three birds, a rabbit, <laughs> and fish. Oh. 
Yes, um, yeah, my my wife is a, a vet, so she just I, I married into this, <laughs> okay. and um, I actually said no to every single one of those pets, and I get vetoed every single time. But <laughs> I love them all; they're all very sweet, and um, my, my kids just have a blast with them, and it's just it's just fantastic. I just, I don't enjoy cleaning up after them, but it's, <laughs> it, it it is very nice to have that those many animals and experience them. Okay, so so share with our listeners. I mean, if they are looking for Christmas gifts, uh, you know, how do they get their hands on this book? Well, it is currently available on Amazon, and so you can go to Amazon and take a look, and it's right there. You can, it's not, it was supposed to be available not too long ago, but uh, with uh, all these shipment shortages that we've had, it, it would take a while to get there. You go ahead and pre-order on Amazon and just type in a shape-shifting adventure in Hawaii, and oh, when it all starts coming out, it should be available at the on your local bookstores, uh, hopefully Target. I'm going to be going over book ends and uh, wherever normal books are sold, where you get some Beach House Press and you you can re- usually recognize them by how colorful they are. So uh, it'll be there. All right. Okay. Really enjoy it, writing it and just reading it again and again. That was Daniel Freitas, author of the children's book, A Shape-Shifting Adventure in Hawaii. Freitas, who previously worked in early education, is currently an education specialist with the Department of Corrections. He says he was very touched when an inmate asked if he could read Freitas' books to his children. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we hear from three former governors about where to build a new stadium and where to build more affordable housing. Share your thoughts. What do you think? Good idea? Bad idea? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. And a reminder, all of our shows are archived so you can listen back to something you missed. Just go to the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.